So the reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 23, uh, starting from verse 32. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we did justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us. Uh, You speak to us a word of life, a word that will challenge us, a word that convicts us, a word that overcomes our shame, a word that brings us to the foot of the cross where we see the glory of Jesus. And we ask that you'll do that again this morning. We ask that you'll take this small part of your word and astonish us again at the wonder of Jesus. For we pray this, that we might trust him more, that we might know him more, trust him more, and grow our joy forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most dreaded moments of any child's life is lining up to be picked for a sports team. Have you ever gone through anything like that? You remember the dread and the anxiety of waiting to be chosen? The judging of each other, who's going to get picked first and why and when? Hoping that you'll be picked because your team captain recognizes that you're good at the game? Or perhaps most of all, hoping that you would not be picked last. The shame and the humiliation of being picked last. Nobody wants that. Who gets the vote to be on the team? Who gets picked for the team? It's always the best first, always the friend, always the insider, always those who have earned it. You realize that that kind of form of selection, that childhood kind of uh, way that we do things, is so embedded into the way, into the things of our lives, the most important areas of our lives, the things that we value. Who gets the scholarship to the elite schools? Those who have earned it. Who gets into university? Those who have the best scores. Who gets the good grades, the medals on the track, the job interviews, the promotion at work? Always the same. Those who have earned it. Now, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I, I'm not saying that it's uh, good to give out grades to those who haven't earned it. It's unjust to give out good grades to those who have not earned it. 
it would not be right to give a job to someone who is unqualified for the position. In fact, it can actually be downright dangerous. A number of years ago, we had a, a few cases up in Bundaberg in Queensland where a number of people died at the hands of an unqualified doctor. But this, this idea of earning our way through life, we're so used to it. It's so prevalent in, in everything that we do. And so as we come to this passage, if we're looking at this passage rightly, it should shock us. For some people, if we're reading our passage correctly, and I pray that we do, then it will leave some of us properly confused. It will leave us scratching our heads wondering how this all works. Or, if we read this passage correctly, it will be one of the sweetest notes in what is the most cruel and horrific moment in all of human history. When we read this passage, it will be confusion for some or sweetness to others, but it will be the same text that we're looking at. So let's set the scene together. We open up Luke's gospel near the end, chapter 23. Jesus has been tried, he's been flogged, and now he's being led away to his final destination, his crucifixion. Jesus tells us in verse 32 that two criminals were being led away with Jesus. Now the reader here of Luke may have begun to notice that Luke is very fond of using doubles. He's often using pairs to heighten or contrast what's going on. So we'll see two women right at the very beginning of the gospel, Mary and Elizabeth, expecting their babies. We've got two saints, Simeon and Anna, in the temple waiting for and finally meeting the Messiah. These pairs are often used, are used to heighten the specialness of Jesus. And in contrast, we have two sisters, Mary and Martha, welcoming Jesus into their homes. We've got two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, going up to the temple to pray. We've got two sons, the good older son and the younger prodigal son, loved by their father. Now, these pairs are used to contrast ways of engaging with Jesus. And so here we have two criminals being led with Jesus. How will they engage with Jesus? And before we get an answer to that, uh, Luke continues to set the scene for us in verses 34 to 38. Now, notice in verses 35 to 38 in particular, the repetition of the words, save yourself, and king of the Jews. Read with me again. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. The mocking of Jesus here, it's ramping up to a new level. And the rulers, a reference to the Jews and the Roman soldiers, they both mock Jesus for being the very thing that he actually is, the king of the Jews. And we know, though, that he's not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the whole universe. And yet here they are challenging him. If he really is the king, then let him prove it by saving himself. But of course he could have saved himself. He could have, with one command, called upon a thousand angels to come down, smash everyone to the ground for their blasphemy. And yet he doesn't. He maintains his silence. The only words actually spoken from Jesus is this moment of prayer in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How do we expect our rulers 
and our leaders in this world to carry themselves, especially when they have been offended or when our nation, their nation has been offended. In 2016, during the US presidential elections, a number of people noticed that some fishy things were happening online. The US later discovered that Russia had been cyber attacking the US to try and sway the election results. And so what did then President Barack Obama do? During a meeting of 20 in China, he pulled Russian President Vladimir Putin aside and he told him firmly, cut it out. Cut it out. There are going to be serious consequences if you do not. Now that's what we expect, right? We expect our leaders to show strength, to show power, to stand up against injustice and tyrants, but not our king. His kingdom is unlike any other. His ways are not the world's ways. His eternal, unstoppable, undefeatable kingdom will appear one day, but this moment here when Jesus is crowned king will not come through might and strength. It will come in humility, in weakness, in meekness, in a simple prayer to his Father in heaven that he would forgive everyone around him for, their, for what they are doing to him. For they do not know any better. This is the King of Heaven acting in His kingly way. Jesus is then hung between the two criminals, one on His left, the other on His right. Uh, this familiar image is, is one of the most is the final and most cruel mocking howls of this scene. Remember, the cross was a disgrace. It was so bloody and so awful and so shameful that Rome made it illegal for Roman citizens to be crucified. The pain of the cross was so extraordinary that a new word was invented to describe the pain of it. Excruciating. Ex, meaning out of. Crucia, the, the crucifixion. Out of the crucifixion was a pain like no other. The cross was reserved for the worst of criminals. And here Jesus is being placed in the middle, front and center of these two criminals. The final act of his shaming. In the middle, the most prominent position, as if he had been the prince of robbers. The most vile of them all. That is our scene. And into this scene, verses 39 and 42, two criminals speak. And notice that they both ask Jesus for the same thing. Notice that they ask Jesus for the same thing, but they're asking in very different ways. Verse 39, the first criminal rails at Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Repeating the words of the crowd, he is mocking and pouring out contempt and scorn on Jesus. But notice that he's also demanding Jesus to save him on his own terms. I want to be saved. You are the one who says you can do it. So do it. And especially in contrast to the other criminal, this man has no thought of God. He shows no guilt, no repentance, no concern for forgiveness. And he also hears no word from Jesus. No argument, no warning, only silence as he rages. But on the other side is a, a striking mirror. An unexpected grace from God appears in this story. You've got to go back to the, the, the final, the, Lord, the, um, the last supper 
scene in, in chapter 22. And you notice as you begin to read from there to this point here in Luke 23, that everyone in the story constantly does not understand Jesus. They just don't get him. The disciples at the Last Supper have no idea what Jesus is saying when he talks about his upcoming betrayal. At the Garden of Gethsemane, they couldn't even stay awake to look after Jesus. Peter says he will defend Jesus and then denies him three times. The Jewish council, Pilate and Herod, they all have no idea what to do with Jesus and all the accusations that are flying against him. And then we just read how the Jewish rulers and the soldiers also mock Jesus in their fatal ignorance. And so then you turn the page and you get to verse 40 and this unexpected grace hits us. The second criminal hanging by Jesus is now the first person in the story with remarkable knowledge who shows repentance, who shows faith. Look closely at what he says in verses 40 and 41 and notice how much information he knows about himself but also about Jesus. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. First notice he understands that what he and his fellow criminal have done deserves death and condemnation. Whatever they had done, he knows they are deserving of what they are getting. Second, he recognizes that unlike them, Jesus has done nothing wrong. He was innocent. Again and again in these final chapters, we're constantly told that Jesus is innocent, that Jesus will not die for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And finally, in verse 42, he shows that unlike everyone else so far, this criminal understands who Jesus is. Look at verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal hanging there, he's hearing the jeering of Jesus. He's hearing the mocking of his kingship. But this man knows that Jesus really is the king. And he has one simple request of Jesus. Remember me. It's not much, but you do have to wonder, how does this criminal know so much about Jesus? How does he get what others don't get. Now, it might be a little bit too much in reading into the passage a little bit to think that the Holy Spirit has somehow miraculously given this criminal all of this information and downloaded it into him at this final moment. It's probably more likely that this criminal knew about Jesus beforehand, maybe had heard him teach, knew something about God and his laws. He knows that he's hanging there under the just condemnation of God. And that is what you understand as you read through the law of the Old Testament. Perhaps his parents had taught him these things when he was younger. But as he grew older and as he sinned and grew in sin, bad influences led him astray, he became a prodigal child. But now in these last moments, what he was taught from young and what he sees in front of him now clicks. It's making sense. It's really hard for me to escape the encouragement I see in this little story for parents who have prodigal children. Or maybe you are a brother or a sister to a prodigal brother or sister. 
children who have been raised in a Christian family but have turned away, be encouraged. Pray that God would use whatever they have learned, even from young, to bring them back, even at the last moment. The second criminal knows that he does not deserve to be in Jesus' kingdom. He knows he has not earned it. And so what Jesus says next will either confuse you or stun you. Have a look at verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, know for certain that what I am about to say to you today, this very day that we will die, when our eyes close, you will be with me in paradise. Now the word paradise there is used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the Garden of Eden, the place where man had uninterrupted, sweet, personal relationship with God. And that's where Jesus was going to take him. Now you think about that. Jesus would soon die after this. The soldiers would then break the legs of the other criminals to hasten their death. And as the second criminal gasped, and as he took his last breath, and as his eyelids closed in death, he became the first person to follow Jesus into paradise. Clothed in robes, given the ring of a son running into the arms and the embrace of his elder brother Jesus, receiving a welcome home to the rejoicing of all the hosts of heaven. That is astonishing. It is astonishing that this man is saved at the last moment. But I don't think that's the purpose of this story. I don't think this purpose, the story, this story is to highlight that it's possible to be saved at the last moment, though that's true. Genuine deathbed conversions do happen and will happen. Rather, the purpose of this story is to remind us that whenever we come to God, we come knowing that we are like this criminal. And here's why this story should either stun you or confuse you. This criminal deserved judgment. He knew it. The witnesses there that day, they knew it. We reading the story, we know it. But what he received instead was paradise. See, if you're a high-achieving person here who has earned everything in their lives, then this story has to be profoundly confusing. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Saving Private Ryan. In this movie, Private James Ryan, played by Matt Damon, is one of four brothers fighting in World War II for the Allies. It comes to the attention of Ryan's superiors that he has lost Three of, his four, uh, three of his brothers. He is the last surviving member of his family. And his superiors are not keen to send home a fourth letter to his mother, who is a widow, with that, gr- with that news. And so in an effort to help console the grieving mother, the, army, the U.S. Army decides that it's better to retrieve Ryan from battle, the battlefield and send him home. Tom Hanks' character is given the job of taking a team of eight men to go and find Ryan, fighting on the front line, and bring him home. They manage to find Ryan, but all the men in the team lose their lives to save him. 
And in the final climactic moment, Tom Hanks, his, his character, having been shot, he pulls Ryan close to him, to his face, and with his dying breath, he says, earn this. Earn it. Now that scene, from everyone I've spoken to who loves this movie, that packs a punch in all of us. Because we know that he's right. Eight men gave their lives for one man, and so Ryan must earn their deaths. And we feel that instinctively as well. We need to earn whatever good comes into our lives. And here comes Jesus, and he throws all of that away. No, you cannot earn this. You cannot earn your way into my kingdom. The second criminal had nothing to offer Jesus. He had not lived a worthy life. He had not earned it, and yet Jesus brought him into paradise. You see, the astonishing thing about this story is not that the criminal got saved at the last minute. The astonishing thing is that he was saved at all. That is stunning. And he is saved by the king who does not save himself. Everyone in this scene didn't understand this. They thought the king of the Jews would be able to save himself, and he could have saved himself. But the king of the Jews did not come to save himself. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And he would save many by not saving himself. And you receive this salvation. You get to receive paradise simply by trusting Jesus and accepting what he's done for you. We are the criminals in this story. We either mock Jesus and want salvation on our terms, or we accept what he's done for us. And we believe and we trust him. And if we trust him, the good news is that it doesn't matter how bad you have been. There is no moral resume required to finally be accepted by Jesus. He doesn't look for character references or good works experience or your personal qualities. All of that is required is an honest understanding of your own sin and trusting Jesus by faith alone. It doesn't matter what you've done. And it also doesn't matter how good you are. Now, most of us in this room, I don't think, have ever done anything or failed anywhere nearly as badly as the criminal did in this story. But we do still need to see ourselves as much in his shoes and as much as we need, in, in as much need as he was. We can't bring anything before Jesus worth earning our right to paradise. There is nothing you could bring. Instead, he offers it to you. So would you take it? You've done nothing to earn it. You only have to receive it. The alternative is to just reject it. But what sense would that make? In 1829, a Philadelphia man named George Wilson was arrested for killing a man in the process of robbing the U.S. mails. Wilson was brought to trial, found guilty, and eventually sentenced to be hanged. Some friends intervened on his behalf and they were finally able to obtain a pardon for him from President Andrew Jackson. But when George Wilson was informed of this, he refused the pardon. 
Now the sheriff was in a bit of a bind. He was unwilling to carry out the sentence and go through with it because how can you hang a man who has been pardoned? So he sent a letter back to the president saying, what should I do? The president had no idea, so he forwarded the matter to the United States Supreme Court to decide the case. And the chief justice ruled that that pardon is just a piece of paper. It has value depending on its acceptance by the person implicated. So you would never imagine that someone facing death would refuse to accept the pardon. But if it is refused, then it is not a pardon, it's just a piece of paper. George Wilson must be hanged. And so in 1829, George Wilson was executed, even though the pardon lay on the sheriff's desk. Now, I'm sure he had his reasons, but it also makes so little sense, doesn't it? A person of sound mind would not reasonably reject this offer. So what are you going to do with it today? And if you're here today and you know that you've accepted it, then be astonished again. Rejoice at the amazing grace you have received. Rejoice again and again that we find ourselves in the place of this criminal looking to Jesus with nothing to offer, asking only for his mercy and receiving it. Be astonished and sing with deep and profound joy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but by the grace and the mercy of Jesus, I see. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you make blind eyes see. You open the eyes of this criminal to turn him to Jesus in faith and trust. And he models for us what it means to come to Jesus. We are like him. We know that we are like him. We know that we come before your son with nothing to offer him. And we can only receive what he has given. So we pray, Father, that you would do that. Help us receive it with joy, with gladness, with praise to you. For we pray that you'll do this for our everlasting joy. In Jesus' name, amen.